Okay, so you have another handout with that should be on there, that title, The Dynamics of the Heart. Up next. Can you read that? Come on, that's hilarious. And how is it related to the dynamics of the heart? Not at all. I just thought that was really funny. Actually, I'm fine. I just like to have a place where I'm allowed on the couch. Oh, something just strike me as really funny. That one, every time I see it. Okay, here we go then. Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Notice firstly, the what. Keep your heart. The seat of our personality. Notice the how. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Uh, in Granberry. When did they pick up the trash? Monday morning. Yeah, no, in Granberry. Um, Thursday morning. Okay, in Granberry, our side of the city, it's Thursday morning. So I put out the trash on a Wednesday night. I do not pull up a lawn chair and watch over it. Why? It's worthless. It's dead to me. I'm throwing it out. We only watch things which are what? Valuable. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Attention. Watching. So there's the what. There's the how. The why. For from it flow the springs of life. We all know what a spring is. There it is. The opening in the ground. The water beneath the surface. Out it comes. It emits from that opening. Forms a stream, a brook, a pond, a lake. You get the idea. What happens if you stop, plug the spring? The water dries up. What happens if you poison or pollute the spring? The brook, the river, the pond is going to be polluted. Whatever happens at the spring determines what happens to the water that flows from the spring. That's the idea. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? It is determinative. The condition of our heart determines the course of our lives. It is that simple. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And so we are concerned with two dynamics of the heart, which constitute two pillars. And these need to be very clear in our minds. And these two pillars, these two dynamics then are applicable across the board. We just caught a brief glimpse of how it's applicable to the whole question of cultivating contentment. But it, uh, it is relevant to every conceivable area, sphere of biblical counseling. What are these two dynamics? There's the first. You're familiar with it. The nature of idolatry. So there's the first key dynamic of the heart. The nature of idolatry. I'm sure much of this will be review. No harm with that. I think uh, there might be something new here, and I trust it will be beneficial and profitable to you. Here's where I want to begin. When we think of idolatry, causality is the place to start. Acknowledging that in our society, there are basically two schools of thought on the table when it comes to explaining human behavior. Why does he do what he does? Why is she the way she is? The first plausible explanation on the table brings us into the realm of psychiatry. Psychiatrist views behavior through what? 
strictly speaking, a biological lens. Therefore, the diagnosis will always be what? Of necessity. It will fall within the biological, hormonal, physiological, and therefore the remedy is already predetermined. The remedy is already predetermined because the diagnosis is already predetermined because the assumption is what? Everything can be explained biologically. For the most part, that is the realm of psychiatry. Um, biological lens, that's how we explain things. We are merely biological, chemical, physiological entities. Therefore, if something is ailing us, if something is wrong, if something is off-center, that must be the cause, and therefore the remedy will always be pharmaceutical. Make sense? That is one option on the table. There's the other. It's the realm of psychology, the psychologist. Not so much through the, the biological lens, but an existential lens. And so everything then, when it comes to a diagnosis, is explained existentially, my experiences, or sociologically. And that means of necessity, it's already predetermined, the remedy will be therapeutic. Some sort of cognitive behavior disorder, hence cognitive behavior therapy, to remedy whatever it is the experience you have or are engaged in, or whatever sociological factor, upbringing, poor education, whatever's on the table, whatever explains the behavior that is then what is remedied. And so basically when it comes to human behavior, basically, I'm generalizing, but I'm not overgeneralizing. Essentially in Western society, right here in the United States of America, when we are accounting for human behavior, these are to a great extent the only two plausible explanations that our world accepts. That's all there is to it. It is the realm of psychology, it is the realm of psychiatry, and they are coming at human behavior through these two principal lenses, the one being biological, the other being sociological or existential. If we limit, if we limit causes, we have immediately limited what? Remedies. Solutions. They're already predetermined because there's nothing else on the table in terms of causality. As Christians, we say, well, no, 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 no. When it comes to causality, the dynamics of the heart and what is going on on not the biological or existential, but the relational level. And we're thinking primarily of our relationship with God. Now, we do not want to be naive and completely dismiss the biological. As some of us get older, men and women, we undergo biological, physiological change, which can affect us and does in many cases. Nor do we want to dismiss the existential. People do have traumatic experiences, which influence behavior. But the reality is this, these are not essentially cause causes as much as they are extenuating circumstances which magnify the cause, which is almost always brought into the realm of the relational and the dynamics of the heart. So to prove this, here we go, quiz time. Are you seated comfortably? I had a speaker put me through this quiz about four or five years ago. I never forgot it. I did not appreciate it at the time. Just forewarned. Please raise your hand if you believe the following. And we're going to find out who's Pentecostal and who's not. God is good and does good. Come on, straight out of Psalm 119. God is the blessed and only sovereign. First Timothy 6. God possesses all authority in heaven and earth. You can go to Matthew 28, for example. God is faithful. Two hands. Let's see it. God is faithful. God knows all things. Hallelujah. 
God is a loving heavenly father. And God works all things together for good. Amen. All right. Don't raise your hands as you answer these questions. Do you ever lie awake at night worrying about someone or something? Some of your answer just ran. <laughs> it was Tuesday night. I did not sleep a wink. Tuesday night, not a wink. My 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 gut is still unraveling from the knot that was in my stomach. Some of you are leaning in. <laughs> is he going to tell us what was going on? No, I'm not. All I'm going to all I'm saying is, I was an anxious mess Tuesday night. Um, it's, it's amazing how quickly anxiety can just sneak up and just grab you. Grab hold and not let go. Here's another question. Do you ever feel envy, anger, or bitterness toward others? Another question. Does discouragement and disappointment ever get the better of you? Lots of times. Okay, now do not answer this one. Do you and your spouse ever bicker? Do you ever get irritable or impatient when things don't go quite your way? All right. So back to the first group of questions. God is good and does good. Yes. God is the blessed only sovereign. Yes, 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 yes. And yet we also answered yes to most, if not all, of the second group of questions. What does that mean? It means this. There is a God of our imagination and a God of our reality. We said yes to all of those truths concerning God. Well, that's true. Of all those things are true, and I believe, why was I an absolute wreck Tuesday night? Why do I struggle with these things? Envy, bitterness, disappointment, discouragement, anger. Why do I bicker with people? Why do I get irritable and impatient when things don't go my way? It tells me that there is at times a chasm, a wide chasm, between the God of my imagination, who I say I believe in, and the God who's actually dictating my reality. Which tells me what? I have an idolatry problem. That's idolatry. Which tells me what? I have a relational problem. There's causality. And you infuse that factor into every conceivable equation that constitutes life. And you get at the heart, approximate the heart of so much of what ails us. Idols, says Dick Keyes, are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. The Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. It is found on center stage. Or as the old magisterial reformer, John Calvin, put it, the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. All right, so this is dynamic number one. Walk through. It's going to be painful. Walk through a few questions with me. Number one, what is idolatry? When we speak of it, right at the bottom of page two, we enter into the realm of desires. And we'll get to the board in just a moment. Desires. Idolatry occurs when we elevate something other than God in our hearts. This thing masters us and motivates us. This thing, for all intents and purposes, functions as God. It becomes the God of our reality. Whatever we might confess with our lips. Whatever we might know cognitively be true. And whatever we might sing about at the top of our lungs. If there is something that masters us and motivates us other than God, then that thing is, for all intents and purposes, functioning as God. 
Martin Luther states, a God is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him with our whole heart. That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. Or a more contemporary voice, Tim Keller, the human heart takes good things, turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. Is that a pretty good definition? You got it? What causes it? Tim Chester, behind every sin is a lie. Something is more powerful. Something is more valuable than God. The root of all our behavior and emotions is the heart. What it trusts and what it treasures. People are given over to sinful desires because they exchange the truth of God for a lie. So back to the whiteboard. In innocence, as God created Adam and Eve, their love was set upon the good. God who is good and does good. Therefore, the affections of their heart followed suit and functioned properly. When Adam and Eve fell and plunged themselves and all humanity into a state of sin and degeneration, love from that moment was set upon self. Love of self. It is the great governing principle of each and every life. Desire and delight are defined accordingly. Well, if my love is set upon self, what is my hate set upon? God. Because my hate is set upon anything that opposes my love of self. And if my hate is set upon God, what do I fear? Who do I fear might come too close? God. And what happens if when he does come too close? Sorrow. But it's an ungodly fear, an ungodly sorrow. That's the sorrow of Judas. That's the sorrow of Ahab. That's the sorrow of, um, did I say Saul? Saul's a good example of that as well, right there. Because that is the state of the natural man, the natural woman, the carnal man, the carnal woman. Love of self is the governing principle. And therefore, hatred of God is vibrant and well. And therefore, every decision that the individual makes is according to misplaced desire, misplaced delight, misplaced fear, misplaced sorrow. And this individual interprets the world and all that is in the world through this skewed lens, which of consequence and of necessity turns what? Things into idols. This is the dynamic of the heart, the fallen heart. What have I got next there for you? Oh yeah, explain that a little bit. The object of our love is self. As a result, we love and pursue objects for self. This is called covetousness, which is idolatry. So covetousness is desire, misplaced desire when love is ill-directed. When love is governed by self-love, desire becomes covetousness which is idolatry. It could be a relationship, sport, hobby, or cause. It could be approval, fame, or success. It could be anything. Point is this. Our pursuit of these things is motivated by covetousness, which stems from self-love. And now as Christians, that principle of love of self has not gone away. That's the flesh. Paul can still say, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. The only thing that has changed is what? Love of God has now been implanted in the soul. And in the language of Romans 6, Romans 7, Galatians 5, we are now engaged in a tremendous struggle, battle between the flesh and the spirit. What is the flesh? It's simply love of self. 
And what is the spirit? It is love of God. And the great dilemma with these two semi-intact motivational systems is what? Which at any given moment will have the supremacy? Which at any given moment will dictate the affections of the heart and the choices I make? And so, so much of the Christian life is cultivating love of God, whereby love of self is mortified, pushed out, suppressed, killed, whatever expression you want to use. The desires of the flesh, we read in Galatians 5.17, are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. That's, that's what's going on with you. That's what's going on with me. That explains the entire tension of the Christian life. That there are these two principles. Love of self, love of God. The flesh, the spirit. And they are waging war against each other. First Peter 2.11 I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh. Which wage war against your soul. There's a battle raging within. It's between the flesh and the spirits, between our love of self and our love of God. It rages on many fronts, but the most serious is this. Who will be uppermost? And when love of flesh is uppermost, well, then the heart is open to all sorts of manifestations of idolatry. How do I identify it? Paul Tripp very wisely wrote, an idol of the heart is anything that rules me other than God. And so when we counsel people, we are taking them on a treasure hunt. And we're simply asking them this question. Where or what is your treasure? That's it. We need to think as we do that in terms of principles and patterns. Principles. Why do I do what I do? What makes me tick? What do I want? What do I desire? What do I crave? And we need to think in terms of patterns. Who do I want to be like? Why? What do I think will make me truly happy? Surface idols are easy to identify. Unless we get to the deeper idols, the bales of the heart that are driving the surface idols will never change. David Paulison, seen with new eyes. Have you read that one? This stage of the game? If you haven't, I'd recommend it. Very good. He gives a list of questions that are intended to help expose deeper idols. What do you worry about the most? What thing or friendship, if lost, would make you question whether to go on living? What do you use to comfort yourself when things get difficult? What are your release valves? What do you do to make yourself feel better? What preoccupies you? What do you dream about? What makes you feel the most self-worth? What do you want to be known for? What do you want people to know about you when you first meet them? And when it's all said and done, you work through these questions, we discover that there are only essentially four principal idols or bales. There they are. Power and success. Control and certainty. Approval and esteem. Comfort and ease. So Tuesday night, 2 o'clock in the morning, I was struggling with this one and this one. And they had the upper hand. That is for sure. Power and success, control and certainty, approval and esteem, comfort and ease. These are the four principal primary bales, idols of the heart that we crave. And detached from love for God, 
When love of God of self is supreme, detached from love of God, you see how quickly these become what? Distorted, twisted, and how quickly they can manipulate us, begin to dictate our lives, become all-consuming, take over. And so when people come to us, I mean, just think of our own experience. When we are struggling, or individuals who come to us who are struggling, say, we, I have a problem. Um, think five peas in a pod. That's all there is. I'm not exact. This is it. When people come and talk to us, what they are presenting and want to talk about will fall into one of those five categories. Pain, parents, people, past, predicament. That is it. That's what they want to talk about. Pain, parents, people, past, predicament. And you know what? We need to engage people when they come to us with these problems. There may be some serious problems with their parents, unresolved, that need to be dealt with if it's within sphere of possibility to deal with them. There may be something from the past. There may be a present predicament. They need biblical wisdom to work through and they need help how to handle this situation. They feel overwhelmed. There may be very real pain. It may be physical pain, the pain of loss, pain of rejection or whatever. These are real issues that we need to speak to and take people to the scriptures and come alongside them and help them navigate the perplexities of life. But here's the thing. When there is an idol of the heart, you know it because whatever category the issue falls into, it has become insurmountable in the eyes of the individual. And when it becomes insurmountable, that thing is now defining the person. Absolutely defining their very existence. Whether it's keeping them awake all night or affecting their relationships with others, their attitude toward life, their very physical health, their outlook. Something is defining them. Why? Because they view that thing as insurmountable. They've identified it as a, either as a predicament, something from the past, some person in their life, something their parents did, or some present pain. And all of that is legitimate and must be dealt with. But you go even further back and you realize, no, 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 no. If something is absolutely controlling and dictating their lives, has become their very reality, they view it as insurmountable. I can go further back and I realize that out of self-love, they've identified something. They're holding on to something to which they have given inordinate esteem and will be either power and success, control and certainty, approval and esteem, comfort and ease. There you've got your bail key dynamic of the heart. Does that make sense? Getting that? However unpleasant it might be to hear and to face. What is the remedy for all this? How can we break this cycle of idolatry? 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure and the way of escape is straightforward. We flee from idolatry by pursuing Christ. Love for Christ. Love for God. And as we grow in love for Him, cultivate love for Him, love of self dissipates. When love of self dissipates, the affections are well ordered. 
When the affections are well ordered, we do not turn things, objects into idols. Therefore, when problems do arise, perplexities do confront us, things from the past, present pain, whatever it may be, these things do not become insurmountable and all-consuming. They are problems that need to be addressed. They are problems that are real and at times bring a high cost experientially. But they do not become gods which completely govern, overwhelm, take over our lives, whereby the God we know who is becomes merely the God of our imagination. Because off we've gone now succumb to a God of our reality, a God of our own invention and making. And so we chase after the Lord Jesus. I mean, it's the Bible, but just go to 1 Corinthians 1.30. Just for what I think is a great text. 1 Corinthians 1.30, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Go over to chapter 3. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is is God. So God is the source of our life in Christ Jesus. And that divine reality is the taproot of our entire salvation. It means our salvation is positional. Christ dying and rising are ours. And he imputes them to us as if we perform them in our own persons. Our salvation is relational. The indwelling Holy Spirit speaks to us by the word and thereby nurtures our faith in Christ. And our salvation is transformational. The indwelling spirit empowers us to express new desires in action. Christ-like character. And that brief description of the remedy brings us to the second key dynamic then, the nature of change. So you're clear on the nature of idolatry? Need to go back and revisit anything? Any queries? All right. The nature of change. I want to change. I want to stop acting that way, speaking that way, feeling that way, thinking that way. I want to alter my sinful deeds, words, desires, thoughts. I want to get serious about idolatry in my life. What do we need to be clear about? Number one, we need to be clear about the object of change. It is the heart. The object of change. Social Darwinism has produced two major schools of thought to explain human behavior, nurture and nature. Nurture, why do I behave the way I do? The answer is my environment. Nature argument, why do I behave the way I do? The answer is our genetic makeup. Both absolve the individual of all responsibility. The Bible paints a very different portrait of our condition. It makes it clear that our problem resides within. Evil comes from the heart. Nurture and nature might exasperate the problem, but they are not the cause of the problem. The heart is the source of all behavior. J.I. Packer explains the affections are the various dispositional drives, positive and negative, with their emotional overtones, love, hope, hate, fear, and so on, which elicit choices by drawing man to or repelling him from particular objects. There they are, the principal affections on the board. This is the problem. This is what must change. That love of self must be replaced with love for God. That love of God must be nurtured, cultivated, 
guarded, preserved, so that love of self begins to what? Be killed, mortified, to use biblical language. And when love of God reigns supreme, what is our greatest desire? God. What is our greatest delight? In God. And if love is set on God, what is hate set upon? Self and sin. And we begin to fear what? Sin. Displeasing God. And when we do, what do we experience? Godly sorrow. Very different from ungodly sorrow. It's the difference between Peter and Judas. David and Saul. Bible gives us tons of paradigms of this. Because hate is now set on sin. This is the change. The second key dynamic of the heart. What we are seeking to cultivate and seeking to guard. The agent of change, the Holy Spirit. Our sin, our love of self alienates us from God. It enslaves us, darkening our minds, hardening our hearts, binding our wills. We're helpless to do anything about it. We must be born again. This is the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make us perfect, but it breaks sin's dominion. The main difference between a believer and an unbeliever is that sin's dominion is broken. But its influence remains. These patterns are still powerfully present in the believer. They affect behavior, attitudes, decisions, relationships, etc., etc., etc. How can I detect it? How can I detect uh, a hard heart? A heart from which the dominion of sin has not been broken. Two clear indicators. Real believers are grieved for sin. Right there. Real believers are grieved by sin, for sin, on account of sin. Real believers are engaged in mortification. Mortification is loosening sin at the motivational level. It is overthrowing sin's dominion daily, love of self. It's weakening the root of desires and motives. Why is this so important? It's important on a theoretical level. You must inform people that there are roots and causes behind actions, addictions, phobias, anxieties, etc., 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 and they are all rooted in that very simple paradigm right there. Love of God or love of self. And the dispositional, inclinational, affectional drives that accompany love and hate. Second, it is important on a methodological level. We inform people that the flesh, love of self, love of self is the great enemy. It is weakened through the penetration of the gospel, focused prayer, and concentrated, deliberate obedience. The impetus for this change is the gospel. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Faith that warms itself at the fire of God's love is the beginning of change. And fourthly, what are the means of change? The mind. Indwelling sin makes us lose appreciation for the beauty of grace and ugliness of sin. These truths lose their control over our soul. They become mere abstractions. And when they become mere abstractions, the beauty of grace and the ugliness of sin, our mind loses focus, our affections lose heat, our will chooses sin, the cycle repeats itself, and you're left with habitual sin. Spiritual power for change comes from filling our mind and acting in accordance with our position 
in Jesus Christ. John Owen writes there in your notes, we taste by experience that God is gracious and that the love of Christ is better than wine. We savor our understanding in Christ. We immerse ourselves in what it means to be adopted into his family, clothed with Christ's righteousness, assured of sins forgiven and set apart by God's grace. We contemplate our standing in Christ. We must grasp the reality of this standing. Because again, spiritual power for change comes from our filling our mind and acting in accordance with our position in Christ. Went through that quickly because I wanted to leave time for questions. Those are the two pillars. Two dynamics. Love for God. Yeah. This goes back to what I was saying earlier concerning those two truths. The doctrine of particular providence and the doctrine of God's steadfast love, especially as it relates to the doctrine of adoption. Those are applicable to so many different things in biblical counseling. Dealing with sin is a case in point. Because it is only as we grow in love for God, his appreciation of his love for us, that conversely we will hate sin and therefore mortify it. We can chastise people till the cows come home. You can give them rules until the cows come home. You can threaten them till the cows come home and it will not do a thing. They need a greater love. That's the only impetus for change is when we love something more than self. And we then hate self and we will act accordingly and get serious with our sin. Okay, any questions? Eight minutes to spare. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'd be an example of it. Yeah. Cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah. One example. Oh, no, that ship has sailed. That's going to be frustrate you for the rest of the night. That's too bad. <laughs> Which page? Oh, on a theoretical. Thank you. Yeah. So theoretical, the why of our approach, methodological, the how. All right, folks. That wasn't too heavy. You've made it through two sessions. One to go tonight or two more? One more. Oh, that's not bad at all. I trust the Lord will bless it to you. I think you have Pastor Terry next, don't you? And then a long day tomorrow. Oh, but it'll be profitable. I'm sure the Lord will richly bless you. I enjoyed it. It's always a pleasure. And I trust there were at least some nuggets in there. I was just reminded of a couple of things going through the material that I needed to hear. And so I trust there was something in there you needed to hear. And that certainly the Lord will bless to us, to our ministries, families, and churches. So enjoy the rest of the conference, okay?